Hello everyone, welcome to Timeless Voyager, where the knowledge is timeless and you are the Voyager. I am your host, Bruce Stephen Holmes, so strap your cosmic seatbelts on and prepare for a bumpy ride today. Today's guest is ufologist and activist, Ed Kamarik. Now I'm going to play a short video that will give you a clear introduction to Ed Kamarik's work, and then I'll introduce you to today's guest, Ed Kamarik. In July of 1993, a few months after the inauguration of President Bill Clinton, and while the first Jurassic Park was still in theaters, a small group of UFO enthusiasts led a demonstration in front of the White House, demanding UFO transparency. The demonstration was led by a group called Operation Right to Know, and it received a fair amount of mainstream media coverage, especially for the 1990s. Though it may not have had the results some had hoped for, I think Operation Right to Know is still an important chapter in UFO history worth studying and remembering. For this video, I was able to interview two of the co-founders of Operation Right to Know, Ed Comerick and Mike Jameson. These days, Ed Comerick lives in the backwoods of Georgia in a cabin he built himself. He has written books on UFOs and forest fire management. One night, or I think it was one morning, uh, I, I wandered out in, in, the, in, the, in the cold and walked down a, a joining street, and there was this little New, new Age uh, bookstore there. And uh, I thought, well, that's interesting. And so I knocked on the door and went in, and it was just like I felt like right at home. There was like incense and and crystals and chimes, and but most important of all, books on UFOs, reincarnation, out of body experiences, near death experiences, all this sort of stuff. And so I started uh, reading. Uh, 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 books in these all these areas and then later on over time I began concentrating more and more on UFOs because it's one of the things you could like kick the tires on that there were you know supposedly actually crash UFOs with uh, that were material and solid and whatever uh, and so it started from it so that stimulated my interest uh, and I studied up on the literature and sometimes I'd come home uh, after co- after I'd gone a, a couple years of college up there. I quit, but I would come home and uh, uh, build a small cabin or t- what they call a tiny home. And uh, I would spend the winters reading up on all the subject matter, particularly on UFOs. So I got a broad understanding of the whole field in probably around 1969, 1970. And then... Uh, Oh, then over time, I went from reading the materials to actually uh, joining UFON, became a section director, mutual UFO network, uh, uh, investigative body uh, that's an international body, and as a section director and got some investigative skills involving UFOs. And then I started off my own um, UFO investigating network within my own, within about 30 or 50 miles of where I live here in southwest georgia uh north north just in georgia north of tallahassee florida and i started picking up cases about once a week through people would call me on the telephone i got messages out and i got material out in the press and whatever and there was about you know one or two ufos sighted or some that people had sighted a long time before came out and contacted me by phone and then I started getting involved with clusters of UFOs north of Cairo that eventually led me to uh, the people that, that actually claimed contact. And I actually saw a craft myself and two of the craft followed me home just to see who I was just because I was sticking my nose into their business. And so they followed me home after midnight and, 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 and flew off the corner of uh, my property. Despite merciless heat, some 100 people marched in a circle in front of the White House today. Their demand? Respect for their cause. One claims first-hand knowledge of extraterrestrial life. Another says she's seen a flying saucer. All want more reports of full disclosure of close encounters with UFOs. CNN's John Holloman has the story. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. 
If this group of 100 demonstrators is correct, the U.S. government is covering up the most important secret of all time. Alien beings who have made contact with Earthlings. People or whatever actually going out in front of the White House with the banner and signs and stuff dem demonstrating uh, in the UFO cover-up and Roswell and, and uh, signs that we had all made up and whatever. And, and uh, that, I don't know if that, was picked, that image was picked up in the New York Times or not, but later we had a GAO and, uh, 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 demonstration that Layden Douglas uh, uh, headed up that I wasn't involved in it, but the New York Times was there and they took a photograph there that they still use for uh, UFO articles that they're putting out and they're no longer debunking the subject and are actually with Leslie Keen and whatever actually helping to uh, bring uh, to end the cover-up. Welcome back. UFOs, the government keeping, documents, secret proving that there were UFOs that landed on this country? I don't know. Well, I, I'm not sure whether or not information is really being collected. I've looked at a number of the documents that, frankly, are very hazy in terms of what they say. But you've got guys like Ed Comerick out here. You could just round up guys like Ed, ask them a variety of questions, and test the veracity. For example, how would you know if what Ed reported was the truth? Or, frankly, a figment of his imagination or something else out there? Well, I presume if it were just Mr. Kamarik making a sighting report, uh, I probably wouldn't be extremely interested in the subject. He did. He kind of put us down a little bit, but it was okay. Uh, and you know, as you know, Bruce McAbee's been involved for a long time in funding mm -hmm. UFO research and and whatever. Welcome to the program, Ed. Hi, Bruce. Great to have you here via telephone. Um, I have a lot of plans, but I think now that people have seen the video, they kind of understand who you are and what you've done in the past. And you've been on many, many, many programs. So uh, you're just new to the Timeless Voyager audience or those who have not heard of you before. Before I start, I have a whole list of stuff up here on my other computer, which I'll be referring to. We're going to get a lot of our uh, questions and things from your articles, and you've written a lot of articles. Maybe you could just give people an understanding as to what these articles are about and why you write them. Okay. My book is becoming a little dated. The Exopolitics book and the Enlightenment book uh, spent about 10 years, I guess. So I decided between uh, recently, I guess about a year ago, to start uh, pick things back up, catch people up on my current thinking and what I've been studying and learning. And so I shared it on these articles, starting you know not too far way out there, but but far enough. And then it kind of gets deeper and deeper as I go down through the articles over this past year. All right, and I think that's a good a good way to start. Um, the first article that I was looking at, uh, and that's the one I'm going to, I'm actually going to uh, get down through here. I got to bring this thing up here. The one that I was looking at that, that kind of got my interest right away was, could some alien encounter cases be real? So I always wonder, like, how does a person decide what's real and what isn't real? So you must have some information on this. So uh, can you focus on that for a moment? Uh, it's very similar to, you know, somebody, uh, between, uh, somebody determining whether a $20 bill is counterfeit or not. And even the experts get fooled sometimes, but generally they don't. That's, that happens like with paintings, you know, fraudulent paintings and you can even fool the experts. But it's just basically what you really do is you have to have a broad understanding of the subject matter to the extent that you can see issues and problems that crop up as being counterfeit of not uh, correlating with the data as you know it. Hmm. So uh, give us an example of, of, let's say, two possibilities, one that you found was real and maybe one that you found that wasn't real. Okay, uh, one nice little book is called, uh, that I just read here not too long ago, is called UFOs Are With Us, Take My Word by Leo Gorshank. 
And it's a, it's a little book about, uh, two little boys that were out in the, in the wilds back in the thirties of the wilds of North Dakota. And they encountered a craft down uh, some distance away. And, uh, they, and there were, looked like people walking around underneath it. And when they went to investigate it, they hit a force field that stopped them. And, and so they just sat down and watched. And then they came back other times and slowly the occupants of the craft lowered the force field down to where, to where the boys were actually eventually, uh, after their, as their fear dissipated over time, they were actually met the occupants and, uh, had discussions with them in the craft. And, uh, some really interesting, uh, uh, information uh, happened right then or is conveyed right then was that they had both, the ship had both a, uh, force field protecting it from a distance from anybody from a distance, but it also had a time field that also protected them from, uh, uh, any, any kind of uh, unexpected encounters hmm. as in, as in this case. And that they took, it showed to the boys that they could actually stop a bird or a missile and fly in time. And, and this is really interesting to me because it crops up as a pattern in a lot of other different cases. And as they were sitting with the, with the force field was, you know, separating them before could they I, actually went. To could the I interrupt? Let, rapid hit the let me interrupt you. Bounce off. Let me interrupt you for one second. Cause I want to ask you this. How old were these boys? Do you, do you know? Uh, they were young. I think I have to look, have to look here in the book, but they I think they're around six, seven, eight years old. Okay. And there were two, there were two brothers. So the point, the point, the reason I ask that is because, uh, the kind of knowledge base that they would have had to report this would yes, would not be at the that time at that time in the 19, early nineteen thirties. Okay, you know that's okay, important. Yeah, you're, you're, you're catching on what I'm what I'm what I'm saying here, and so and they described other things in the and uh, the time field is particularly of interest because I ran to it here even locally from some. People that, that became contact friends, but were really low on the socioeconomic scale. And one of them said that these two more ignored females that were studying plants had a box, and it was a time stasis box. Essentially, they they just said it was a box where they stopped time. So you put your specimens in the box, and so you don't need refrigeration or anything. So it's just, the time is slowed down to a point or stop that uh, it's preserved. And it, and I assume that happens that happen with a live animal. And in fact, there's many other encounter cases in which people, this silence descends when the craft comes in, and there's no sound. The insects, you know, hear any chirping. It's just like super silence. And apparently, uh, um, Preston Dennett had a really good article on one of them where they stopped the people on the street and everything were stopped dead and like frozen. But the one individual that they were communicating with was allowed to stay in their time and he communicated with them. And then they put him back and then they started up time again. And the people didn't even, uh, that were been frozen had no idea what had happened. Now, before so you, you have all these correlations, you know, and, and, and time, the time field goes way back to Arthur C. Clarke books, Childhood's End, in which the ETs can't, would actually stop the time or slow down the time of the individual and they could move around that individual and essentially be invisible. Hmm. And so that, so that time field material goes way back and those patterns, you know, all, fit in very well with this case. So this case gives you a lot more detail, not only that, but a lot of other things as far as what inside the ship and that sort of thing. Now, another case. Wait a minute. Wait, let's go. Let's, let's stop for one second before you go on to the cases. Cause you're telling me about cases that I think uh, you're using as illustrations of real cases. But yeah, what? Yeah, this is this, this this is I believe is a real case. Right. UFOs are with us. Take my word by Leo Dorstek. It's a little small book. You can get it from Amazon. So, what about some example or an example of a case that you believe is not a real case? Okay, that was, that was what I was about. Okay, to sorry. Go ahead. Uh, okay, here recently I wrote a whole article on this guy uh, called uh, called Polynesian Diaries. Pogerin dropped diaries in which he supposedly met in the swamps of Florida 
uh, female extraterrestrial that had a lineage of royalty that made a mistake and got her foot caught in mangrove roots. And he saved, he came up and saved her and helped her get out of the roots and developed a relationship with her. And then he gets into her and uh, uh, communication with her and her friends and actually travels to other star systems and where meetings go on between extraterrestrials as part of a galactic confederation and all this. And it sounded pretty good, and I wrote it up. And uh, But then my friend Mike started doing some investigating, and he went to the guy's uh, blog, and he was really a right-wing uh, kind of a conspiracist. But even worse, he was actually uh, had uh, was getting money from claiming to be a uh, saving children all around the world, his company and whatever, which really didn't exist. The only thing he had to had was a GoFund uh, wow. uh, operation in which he made about $12,000 off of the public. Hmm. And the pictures that he used as children that he was saving, he actually copped off of uh, legitimate uh, uh, programs. And so there was a lot of flag flags let up. And I talked to him for about an hour. And then it became evident after I knew this that, you know, he was deceiving me and the public and whatever. That's that's pretty fraudulent, huh? Uh, well, there's a lot of it in the field. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but uh, I think he wrote a second book, Politician Diaries, but he no longer interests me, you know. In fact, I was been writing on a, maybe a book of, of a conversation called Conversations with Extraterrestrials, and I had that in the book, and then I was going to delete it, but then I thought maybe, well, maybe I ought to leave it there. So it shows, you know, how easily a person can be deceived if they don't go in and do some research and get to know the person, you know, uh, you know and get the most, know the person directly. I, I can see that. So, yeah. So I hope that answers your question. Oh, it definitely does. And I think a lot of uh, the people listening are probably happy that we got that straight. That was quite an example of, of, a, of a case that was not real. There are yeah, plenty of them. Tom DeLongo, you know, who's, who's, who's you know, has been into a lot of encounter cases and whatever out there in, uh, in Arizona, I think it's Arizona, and supposedly pretty knowledgeable, and he's even written that he's been taken for a ride so many times, but he was promoting this, and then when I put, gave the material to him, he just kind of ignored it. Hmm. So he just got taken again and again. Some people, they just... They just get taken over and over again by these fraudulent people that have had different agendas. Either they want some attention or they wanted to create a cult or they, uh, you know, so people, are, you know, people have a lot of different motivations and agendas other than the truth. And so the only way to really sort that all out, you know, when you, when people are your eyes and ears, you know, you got billions of people that are your eyes and ears all over the planet is that you just have a broad understanding of encounter cases to the point that you can see patterns both that that uh, fortify that, you know, you, you believe that person is a real case or uh, obviously a fraud. So we talked about this uh, on a previous phone call where we talked about the idea of the scientific method and the uh, repetition of certain types of uh, information that repeats over and over again is a clue. Sure. It's a clue like a detective would uh, use to discover you know, who the person was, the perpetrator, so on, so on and so forth. Yeah, 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 we have different systems. You know, we have the criminal justice system that works with witnesses, you know, and, and you get cross-examined and you try to figure out what the truth is. And people go to, tr- to jail for, you know, for, for crimes by witness testimony alone. So witness testimony is valuable, but people, you know, can't think beyond a certain stage because there's been this 80-year-old cover-up and they say, well, show me the physical evidence and then I'll believe, you know, but they can't think any, think any further because the physical evidence is being withheld and so you got no other option but to work with, uh, with witness testimony and just, and basically what cultural anthropologists do and they do these, and that's what's sort of important about Arctic Clark is she was a indigenous, uh, uh, cultural anthropologist and so she had the skills of the scientific, you know, skills of cancer, uh, of a anthropologist to be able to correctly uh, uh, interview these people and protect their identities and and the 
whole community had great respect for her. So you can kind of, you can trust her as an investigator, but you can also pretty well trust her cases because the, the cases that she uh, are all protected. 95% of the people had everything to lose and nothing to gain and would only give their cases to her if she gave them anonymity. So let's and, let's be more specific about Artie, uh, Artie Clark, because you ha- you know a lot about her. You talk a lot about her books, but why don't you give a little bit of background on on who she was? She's not in good health, um, but why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about her? Okay, she was an uh, indigenous professor uh, at, at Montana State University and working with the whole indigenous community all the way, you know, Washington, D.C., and in government and and uh, in areas where she collected a lot of these cases, actually. Uh, but she did all of this collection of cases on the sidelines. But uh, she had her own contact experience when she was a, a child going out to an outhouse that she sort of alludes to, if you read all the books, you'll put all the little pieces together, and that these human extraterrestrials were actually mentoring her, and some of her cases, I think they helped her find some of these cases and whatever, so you're not really just dealing with an individual, you're dealing with a whole extraterrestrial group uh, program designed to uh, brief humanity in a balanced manner rather than in a you know, with partial truths designed to manipulate the populace or whatever. So these extraterrestrials and Artie Clark both, I think, wanted to get the truth out to the public as to extraterrestrial reality. And the way that she did it was just really ingenious. She just told the story that from highly predatory to highly extraterrestrial races by just the selections that she put in her books. And so once the people understand that we that it's kind of like as below, so above, then you get to the point, you know, in your thinking, you can begin to think about alliances, NATO-like organizations, uh, 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 confederations, federations, because just like in nature and just like here on Earth, where you, wherever you have, you, uh, you have both conflict, uh, competition, and cooperation. And it's no different out in the universe, and that the laws of of, of um, nature are just like the laws of physics. They they go out across the universe because possibly we live in some kind of a holographic universe, in which if it's happening here, it's happening everywhere else, or vice versa. If it's happening there, it's happening here. People change. Uh, and people, we can understand yeah. this. We don't have to be afraid of the some of the destructive or predatory uh, extraterrestrials. And it's just like New York City, you know, you don't keep quit going to New York City because you could get mugged on some side street or whatever. You just learn not to go into those areas. Right. But the problem, the problem with that analogy, not that it's not a good analogy, but the problem with that analogy is that people don't actually know. They haven't been educated yet as to who the predators are and who they aren't. Let's talk about some of those predator type ETs. And let's compare them to the uh, more uh, beneficial ETs. Okay. Well, it, whenever you have you have low situational awareness, whether you've never been to New York or City like me, I've never been there before, and I kind of had old genes, and I walked down all these side streets where if you had been in a business suit, you'd probably been mugged. But you know, I was fortunate that I didn't get mugged. But if you have, you know, high situational awareness of New York, you know where to go and where not to go. And the problem is that people don't have that situational awareness when you're dealing with extraterrestrials. And so when the government starts leaking out information and that's coming out broadly through all the abductees, you know, thousands and, you know, tens of thousands, maybe millions of abductees that are being abducted apparently by this mantis type insectoid, uh, uh, society that basically seems to be uh, be in control of what most people know about the great so-called grays as more of a working class but they often see the insectoids in the background but the grays are the working um class basically are the ones that pick people up and do the procedures on them and take their uh eggs and ovum and and are doing the cross-breeding operations, whatever. But in the background, there's, there's occasionally people will become aware of, the, of an insectoid that's very tall, 8, 10, 12 feet, 
uh, seems to have, have, have uh, according to this autopsy report that Russian autopsy report that I wrote in one of, in one of the articles has compound eyes just like amanthas or uh, turbites or ants, and that they believe that the Russians believe that they evolved from uh, uh, from insect from anthropods that came on the land, but here on Earth, the anthropods never developed lungs or be able to process oxygen very well, so they never could get very big except in the carboniferous when there was higher oxygen levels, and they did get quite a bit bigger. You had, uh, you know, six-foot centipedes and dragonflies that were two feet across, but as soon as the oxygen levels went back down, uh, the insects got smaller and smaller again to where they were before, so they never solved that problem on this planet. Now, the person that kind of uh, went over that article, drew a lot of suppositions or whatever that just weren't correct that it was happening on this planet, but they, they ignored the fossil record because if, it, if, if insects had developed lungs and grew to a large size, we would see it in the fossil record. And so this is one species that essentially is farming us just like um, uh, we farm cattle or sheep or whatever. They're, we have something they need, which is the genetic material, and they just pick people up and they take it. And the problem with abductees is, is that they're like people, uh, uh, animals been tranquilized. You know, you see the helicopter, the animal sees the helicopter approach and then it feels the sting of the, and it jumps when it, when the, when the, uh, it's injected and then it runs. And then the next thing it, you know, it's got this jumbled memories. And the next thing it knows is kind of staggering off and looking back and the helicopter is leaving. And abductees are in that same same kind of situation because they've been subjected not only to mental the mental uh, influences of mm-hmm. these very powerful uh, beings, but they also have atmospheric gases, according to Artie Clark in one of her cases, that basically turns you kind of into a zombie that you can be, uh, or you don't cause trouble on the craft and that sort of stuff, and you do, and and whatnot. And so, one of the Marty's cases that's so valuable is called. Um, uh, masters of deception. And this lady, apparently one out of 20,000 people that get abducted, which indicates there's a lot of people being abducted and a lot of them that don't even know about it. And a lot of them, the memories only come to later, but one out of 20,000 people that get abducted, uh, don't, uh, 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 uh remembers everything in detail and is not affected by the atmospheric gases. So they, they do. These people do remember what happened, right? Yeah, one out of twenty thousand. This one out so, of two, and the and the insect toys actually communicated with her and put her through some tests, trying to figure out why it was that she was immune to atmospheric gases and their mental control. So that kind of like changes the whole perspective because that means that the that the, that the abductees that we know of, okay, the stories that we hear, are from a very select group of people. Who do not react to the gas that's in the uh, vehicle? The the uh, the, the uh, well, this, this particular case, but most of them do, and and I, and they will and they will t- and they then they start to get some of their memories back and flashbacks, you know. Later on, not, you know, they, later, they often feel traumatized, and right. abused, but they don't understand why, and it starts coming out back out in their dreams, just like somebody that's been you know in Iraq or Iran, you know. And it comes back out and even un- under hypnosis. But then there's a the question is how much is the, is the hypnosis affecting their memories right. or whatever. So what these cases that are where their people are not affected, uh, one out of 20,000 are just really valuable cases to, to have because they have the people involved have full knowledge of what's going on. And they and and they give a lot of detail. Like she says, they treat the resistors, the ones that try to resist even in spite of the, the, the atmospheric drugs. Uh, badly, they actually deliberately hurt them because mm-hmm. they don't like non, you know, they don't like people that, that are that are not complacent. Mm-hmm. And so, so the resistors get a lot more grief, and a lot of those resistors end up end up on the internet, and they're very angry and upset as their memories come back and whatever. And and they try and they tend to think that all extraterrestrial races here on the Earth, uh, like Summers, uh, you know, group or whatever. Are are uh, predatory, but that's just simply not true. That's just a partial truth. Okay, so now let's let's <laughs> let's give everybody a break from that side of it. Let's talk about some of the extraterrestrials that are basically good people. Okay, 
Um, I mean, the Nordics, I guess the Nordics come to mind. There are more than that, I think. But Yeah, as long as you're dealing with a, a free Nordic and not one of the humans that the insectoids have sexually bred that looks just like them. Hmm. Okay, wait, wait, you're coming, (laughs) you're going back the other side. Leave that alone for a minute. Okay, Okay. so how do you tell the difference between the two? Well, you can't. I I mean. You can't unless, again, it's like the same with the counterfeit bill, unless you spend some time with the beings, just one meeting, you know, you might not be able to tell, but if you get to know them as, you know, become friends with them, like my local contact people did, then, you know, that gets sorted out over time. And so what happened with me was, is I've read all this material and stuff going way back into the early 70s and whatever, but I've developed my own intelligence gathering network here locally, and it led me to three encounter people right in my uh, uh, neighborhood here. And I got to know them, became friends with them, saw the craft, craft followed me home, never had a face-to-face meeting. But it, uh, everything that they say, I believe, is, is true because it correlates with uh, the literature. And they were just really low on the socioeconomic scale, and nobody would have believed them anyway if they had talked, you know, and went public or something. So that's- they were dealing with two different types. And one was the uh, barrel-chested short type that claimed to have come from a star system, I think 12, 12 and a half light years away, which I assume was just the gravity might have been a little more than what we have here, being that they were kind of stocky and barrel chested. And that they were doing uh, investigations, environmental investigations and um, uh, historical research that they told the contact person who ended up traveling with them. And I don't like to use this person's name you know, so I just use K. And what K did uh, was that he was down fishing down in a swamp, and it had the he was in a creek that had kind of high size to it. And so apparently, the craft when it came down didn't pick him up on their scanners. And I think five of these guys walked down the ramp, went out and took some uh, water samples, and they were kind of standing around joking with each other. And he kind of came up around a tree and was watching them. And then they they started to go back to the craft, and he stepped out and said, I just want to meet you, and, you know. And they started to run up the ramp, and they turned and looked at him because they'd kind of been caught, you know, uh, unawares. And then they started laughing, and he started laughing. They came back down, and they actually became friends, and he began traveling with them and actually described how that craft was maneuvered. It had like a ball, and you moved your hand over the ball to move it forward or backwards or sideways or whatever, and then it had a system on it for uh, disguising the craft where you where you couldn't see the craft with if that was turned on, and a lot of detail that you know came out later and whatever. So he got to know these types, and then through them, I think he got to know the Nordic types who are also operating the area, who are also doing the same kind of research. There were two men that were uh, 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 Nordic humans, a typical... Nordic uh, human of about six foot two, I guess, or whatever. Mm. Arnold Schwarzenegger type, right? You know, bodybuilder uh, structure, and and uh, the females. But he was only dealing with the males. Another contact person there that I met through all these was dealing with females, and they're very beautiful people and whatever. And you know, they got perfect complexions and all that because basically they're gen- genetically modified organisms that can live to a thousand years or more, whereas, uh, you know, we're kind of the fruit flies of the galaxy. You know, they're, you know, most of these beings all live for extended lifetimes because of the technologies involved and whatever. But he got to know them, uh, uh, the Nordic types, and he had a lot of stories that tell you, give you have a lot of detail in them, and that um, one time he, they, they were visiting him in his house, and they couldn't beam out because this nosy jet was circling around the area and it was up to something. And so they had to stay in there for a while and they didn't eat meat, but he offered them a beer and they drank a beer along with him. And on the table, they, he had a, a copy of Penthouse magazine and one of the Nordics <laughs> picked it up and he said, why do you need this? <laughs> and so they don't know everything. So they're learning just like we're learning. So they're involved in these studies, probably updating databases that they have on earth that are pretty vast i would imagine because if they're going doing this in my local neighborhood there's got to be a lot of them all over this planet and that kind of ties in with 
some other cases of, of an Nordic base possibly being up in uh, Tennessee, about underground up in Tennessee, Alabama area, whatever, that they possibly operating up. Whereas a lot of ETs, like the ones that were Leo Dorsey, there was only 12. I think there was two groups of six. And they flew directly to uh, to uh, their star system, which I'm not remember for sure. It might have been in another galaxy. Okay, you have an article. Uh, you, it's article number eight, actually. And uh, <clears throat> the title of the article got me. It says, who is Ed Kamarik and what does he know? <clears throat> and then you have a, a portal um, that people can go to. I'll make sure that, that portal goes up somewhere. But my question, <clears throat> excuse me, is this. Why don't you give people a little bit of a background as to where all of this information that you know about has been coming from? Uh, what do you mean? Well, for example, you talk about um, you subscribed back in the 70s to... Uh, a contactee of uh, the Bearden newsletter. Newsletter, yeah. Uh, Bill Moore's Focus Journal. Um, okay. So you have a lot of people that you have, uh, quote unquote, studied with or learned from. And I think it's good for people to know that anyone, the, the, pur- the purpose of me asking this question is people sometimes have this, this I don't know, passive view where. Oh, that's interesting. That's fantastic. That's amazing. And then, you know, they just, uh, okay, what's next? It's not like they're active. You're an active person. You you studied it. Uh, you learned what these things were. You speak about it. So you've immersed yourself in the field consciously. It's not like this thing just happened. And I think people people would probably be interested in a little bit about how you made this happen so that you could be so knowledgeable. Okay, I, uh, I had a, I was born into a family on a plantation here down in southwest Georgia, and I grew up in um, some of the top ecologists, early ecologists on the planet. And Herb Stoddard was one of my mentors, and he was known for being the father of wildlife management and also one of the founders of uh, of ecology and was a good friend of Otto Leopold. So I grew up um, in nature and... Uh, got to be a pretty much of a know-it-all and as I grew up and went to college uh, I went to a local college and I decided I wanted to go to the University of Alaska you know we had made trips of the family up to Alaska and to Canada and whatever and so I, I really loved my parents but I felt I really needed to develop my own identity and living you know close to them you know was affecting me and so that's when I really began to diverge from you know their interests and into and went to the University of Alaska and there was this little bookstore one day and we were playing pool about forty below zero and I went and got out and walked to a back street and there was this little new age bookstore and but hmm, opened the door up and uh, to the smell of incense and chimes and books on every possible subject matter, near death experiences, mm-hmm. UFOs, psychic phenomenon, transcendental meditation, all these different uh you know books and uh, i just felt really at home and so that's where it really started and it also started me into it sending me into an existential crisis because all this was so different from than what i had been led to believe and so uh, i i I hit rock bottom in this existential crisis and I went kind of deep down and got very depressed over a period of a couple of years and went deep down inside of myself. And I said, you know, it's just not any more to life than what normal people are living. You know, I don't want to live. And these three beings that were like dewdrops in the morning, like I only described with light shining on the dewdrops, said to me, your past is the truth, your vehicle is honesty, and the fuel is your vehicle for love in a thought form that's completely outside of uh, of any normal kind of possibilities or whatever. And that's, the, and that really turned me around. And then I realized at that time is I kind of gave myself over to them and said, this is really too complex for me to 
work my way out of this whole situation I'm in, you know, and, the, and it's what's going on, on the planet and mm. everything else. And just, can you give me some guidance? And I realized that right off the bat that I would have to clean up my mental and emotional uh, baggage and uh, separate myself from uh, destructive thoughts and, and whatever. And that's when I got into transcendental meditation and whatever that helped a lot to back me off and to kind of reestablish contact with my source. And then I developed this really strong interest in what is the nature of reality? Who am I and what is the nature of reality? And over time, I tended, uh, I studied uh, near-death experience, reincarnation experiences, and, and that all was in my enlightenment book. But I tended to focus quite a bit on extraterrestrial activity because it was a little more solid. They were physical craft. You know, you get kicked the tires, so to speak. And so I start reading more and more. And then I took that little newsletter, uh, contact team newsletter and, and started studying contact cases. And then I actually, you know, started communicating with other people like Bill Moore, uh, in the UFO community and Walt Andrus at UFON and, Got to know most of the people in the field and actually helped some of the people like Stephen Greer, you know, when they came into the field. And so, uh, uh, I got a, a real hands on experience. And then when I had my own intelligence gathering network, I was able to compare, you know, locally from actual direct contact, you know, seeing, you know, having crafts follow me home and that sort of thing. And so that's how I, uh, you know, really got into it all. That's amazing. So people can people see, for example, that you don't have to be special. You just have to kind of study something and learn about it, and then it'll start to take you on its own road. That's right. Um, you got it. You say in one of your other articles, which I found really cool, uh, the title is, We Don't Own the Earth, We Share It. Uh, tell us a little bit about why you made that type of statement. Okay, that's a very important concept for people to wrap their minds around. And ultimately, it's important to read Artie Clark just as a start. You know, her books, especially uh, more encounters with star people that show you cases that from highly predatory to highly altruistic. And uh, once you understand, once you understand that, then you can, you can be able to wrap your mind around that there are a lot of extraterrestrial races here. Some of them are more active than others. And the most active ones have bases, apparently have bases underground and under oceans and in space and not only here, but on the moon and others, other, uh, uh, moons and planets of our solar system because they have the technology to deal with the extreme conditions, you know, whether it's underground or under an ocean on Europa or something like that or whatever. And so. With all these, having all these bases, you know, uh, uh, both uh, the predatory bases, uh, the insectoids, possibly reptilian bases, and Nordic bases, and other types of humans uh, that are operating up here with, with bases that have been had been here for a very long time, and they've even had a lot, like the goes into our, our who we are today, and into and the Illinois our genetics for a long period of time that have involved in our creating of our religions and basically hurting us like a bunch of sheep uh so you have all these beings coexisting that have bases here which is not all that different from what we have on the earth where you have conflicting governments in conflict with each other but everybody has to coexist and my contact people told me that that, that he asked his ets the barrel chesting ones i think are the nordics you know why you know if they didn't like what the what the insectoids are doing why don't they do something about it and he said you know that would if we did we don't like it but if we did do something it would start a hot war a war between us and so it's the same so you got all this jockeying around going on in the extra in the extraterrestrial reality just the same as this it does here on earth and so we can understand this and so we don't own the earth. We're we're just kind of like a new kid on the block that comes into New York and gets beat up over and over again because he thinks he owns the block by the other people that have been there before that you know that established there until he finally gets it knocked into it to him and like the military is learning that 
that, you know, attempting to shoot down these beings and whatever and getting one every once in a while, all it does was is kind of push allies away and make us more vulnerable to predation by the insectoids and the reptilians. Hmm. So the bottom line is uh, we should be, well, first of all, you have to know the difference again <laughs> between the. Yeah, you can't, you can't, you can't say this is our planet and we are therefore going to defend it, and everybody that comes here better darn sure you know do what we tell them to do. Yeah, and that and that's what gets that's what's got the military into, into such a bind, and and and, and the situation has become so difficult that it's that the military, in order to sort of to protect the public, have actually destroyed the situational awareness of the herd. That allows the predator to be- operate better, really, you know, better in, in our midst. Doing exactly the wrong thing is to is, is to institute an eighty-year-old cover-up to, of, of the whole of extraterrestrial reality, where the people as a whole can't organize to deal with the predators. So we're talking about it, the the fox in the hen house. Yeah, the you know, and, and, and also the military itself don't realize that they're so arrogant. The top leaders. That the best way that you control a society is as autocratic like ours, you know, either, you know, uh, straight out autocratic or have a veneer of, of democrat, you know, democracy like ours is to control the leaders. So, you know, there's a I just saw a show on PBS in which the sharpshooter buffalo hunters out west could get on top of a hill with this new gun they got from Remington or someplace where it could shoot long distances. And they would uh, lung shoot the, the leader of the herd, and the, it would just stand there, become mobilized. It wouldn't fall down. And the rest of the herd, they think everything's okay, and they should systematically shoot all the rest of the herd because the social awareness of the herd had not yet adapted to sharpshooters and that somebody operating out beyond their range of perception. And so all these abductees are going through all this grief and trauma and everything being picked up and treated as animals and experimented on. And, you know, thousands and maybe millions, and nobody will believe them. So on top of being, you know, uh, uh, the, the stigma associated that was deliberately built in order to cover this up, keeps them from talking or communicating, you know, with each other and others. And so not only do they get traumatized by the event itself, it's like women that used to be raped and they were blamed for being raped. Hmm. The uh, Who are the blue men extraterrestrials? Okay, that's a more complicated one. If I remember correctly, I think they, I'm not sure if they were the ones that said that they were once human like us, but they've just evolved beyond that. Uh, some of these more altruistic beings have evolved beyond uh, predator-prey relationships. They've transcended to a point where it's it's win-win, not win-lose. And apparently the blue men are involved on this planet. They don't like wars and they're, and they're, and they're according to several different cases that were kind of all connected uh, that Artie Clark has that they were recovering human bodies in wars and racing their memories and bringing them back to life and moving them to other planets to live. And so they had their own agendas too and whatever, but they themselves, I'm not sure if they were still in, physical form or whether you just create your own physical, when you get to a certain point, you can just create your form on the spot that you want to interact with, just like in a video game, you know, you create your identity in the video game and then you go about interacting with the video, you know, you know, the video landscape. Hmm. Interesting. Um, you wrote an article, this uh, article 14, uh, it says, um, uh, and you're going to, I'll ask you the question, you know, like, what are the conditions for ethical extraterrestrial intervention? Okay, basically transparency. Uh, exact opposite of what's happening on this planet. And it's just now happening, but it's becoming more transparent. Something happened in around 2017 in which the New York Times went from debunking this. In fact, they debunked our demonstration you know, and put some some silly stuff that was put on there deliberately to to uh, uh, create stigma and whatever. But in 2017, apparently they decided to start printing uh, Leslie King's uh, investigative work and whatever uh, about black programs and uh, programs beyond uh, congressional oversight that have, have spiraled out of control over the over decades. And where, where you had people now in control over this, this secret society 
within our society that have tremendous power over the rest of us, but there's no congressional oversight or citizen oversight. And so somebody somewhere may have realized that destroying the praise situational awareness was not going to benefit anybody but the, but the predator. And so I think they're finally, military finally getting smart, you know, after they've got the nose bloody so many times or whatever, and they shot, you know, they shot down a few. First one was 1974. I got that report on my, on my page and it was confirmed by Corso in his book, uh, several years later, uh, started in 74. So occasionally they bring down one and, and quite often, uh, the ETs retaliate and the jet disintegrates and they've lost a lot of pilots over time or whatever. So. We could, simply because they think this is our planet, we own this airspace, and therefore anybody moving in this airspace, we have a right to shoot them down. And that's what they were even trying to do with my local friendly ETs in my local area. We watched the, the jets come out of Moody uh, and, and chase them and playing cat and mouse with them way overhead like a bunch of bees. And I go on the Internet uh, that night or the next day and report on all this, and the next night, the whole place gets smoked up by flares. And so obviously the flight commander didn't like me, you know, going on the internet and spreading this out across the planet, you know, what was happening here in my local area. But they were playing cat and mouse and probably attempting to shoot them down. And these were allies of ours that actually, you know, trying to benefit and help us, you know, deal with some of these other more predatory races. And so, why are we, why are we protecting and maybe cutting deals with the insectoids because we feel we don't have any other option, costing deals, but at the same time, we're, uh, harassing potential allies. It's, it's stupid. It's really, you know, stupidity. And, uh, maybe, maybe, uh, uh people in the military and intelligence community and in private industry are beginning to realize that uh, they've been had, they themselves have been manipulated, you know, by the predatory races to do the exact opposite for that what benefits humanity out of their own greed and fear. In one of your uh, most recent articles, I guess it was on the 21st of October of this year, you wrote the disclosure of the carrot program at PACL. How ET technology works. Is that something that you could uh, respond? Yeah, that was, that was just recently I became aware of that. I'd heard about and I'd seen those videos of those, uh, craft on the power line and whatever, you know, years ago. But I didn't realize that there was a whole commentary of, you know, of information on that. And that, and of course, like the guy says in this metallic man says in that article, uh, there's been a lot of money spent on disinforming operation, disinformation operations on that much more than you would expect if it was a fraud. And, uh, it pretty clearly explains just how the military is able to, uh, uh, and the military and a private industry can work together and have a facility right in Palo Alto, California. Right in the obvious facility with, uh, glass doors or whatever and a guard inside that looks just like any other business. But past that, you have men with machine guns and everything else and super high security and being run by the military. And so it gives, it gives some insight, whether it's real or not, still gives insight of basically what's going on, that this is not just a private industry problem, as Congress seems to believe. It's also a military problem uh, because the military-industrial complex is all interconnected, and these people go from government into in private industry and back again, whatever, uh, just you know, just just like Bobby Inman, whatever, who got caught by Bob Arster on a telephone call talking about all this mm. and said that, and basically said what Ed Richard said, you know, Ed Richard said, you know, you know, it would be, an, you know, we have these technologies to take ET home, but it'd take an act of God to get it out of the hands of private industry right. government because there's so much money and trillions of dollars involved. I was right in on that from the beginning because I was, I had developed uh, connections and communicated a lot with John Lear at the time. Mm-hmm. And John Lear, I used to talk and I even got his letters here. We communicated back and forth and, there is some problems with Lazar's background, 
you know, that was brought out by Stanton Friedman. But if you, if you realize that John Lear is CIA and he run, you know, he probably used to run counterintelligence operations. He ran a call and te- I think he ran Bob Bazaar at the counterintelligence operation because he had heard about S4 and whatever. And so what he did is maybe souped up a little bit of Bazaar's background and, uh, and, and Bazaar, you know, came to the attention of Edward Teller and got Edward Teller's recommendation. And, by, and, and between all that, they bypassed security to find out what was going on there. You know, decided to come out and go completely public. And that involved um, uh, uh, George Knapp. And hmm. I've communicated with George Knapp over the years. In fact, he, he really helped me with my first exopolitics book by going on the radio station. And which really has a lot of listeners, too, you know, all over the world. Cause right. Coast. And... Uh, and then so, so apparently Bob has shown a piece of the fuel element 115 that was used in the, um, power plant of the craft that was the size of a basketball. And, uh, they buried it somewhere out in the desert. And so, you know, uh, George Knapp is very well respected journalist and, uh, broke a lot of stories over his lifetime and whatever. So. I have a lot of confidence in spite of all the grief that Bob Lazar gets and whatever. A lot of his stuff is becoming true. And, and this is one of the latest things was that when they examined this basketball sized power plant, it was like a particle accelerator that adjusted the output, determining on what the, the pull of, of, of electricity that was needed. And he says it was a solid composite, you know, with no wires or, uh, or, uh, transistors or diodes or anything like that. It was like a solid uniform composite and exactly what this program was talking about as the nature of, of extraterrestrial technologies. And uh, Gary Nolan has even has stated that at ET, uh, we, we build with elements, ET builds with isotopes. Hmm. And so, and so this isotope technology, we're just now really getting into in the medical profession and even tracking mammoths uh, uh, all around their range that I saw the other day using isotopic analysis of where those uh, uh, where those uh, mastodon uh, mammoths fed, they're able to track their habits year after year after year through the tusks because it's the isotopes get laid down and, and every area has a different isotope concentration. So we're developing this isotopic technology, but. A lot of that detail, that extreme detail that's in that current report, I can see where, you know, give a lot of people heartburn, you know, and so you would necessarily have to create web pages and debunking, oper- you know, disinformation operations to try to cover that up. And so that got me interested enough that I just got today, uh, Metallic Man's Majestic Disclosure Volume 3. I didn't get the first two, but this one is our universe. And so I'm going to see. What kind of validity he's living out in? Uh, uh, he's living in China now, so he's out of range of MJ12 <laughs> of the United States, pretty much. All right, let's. Uh, we're going to. Ra- we're getting close to wrapping the show up, so let's leave people with something to scare the hell out of them. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, you wrote an article: "Humanity's low cosmic situational awareness indicates that we are prey." Yeah, so we're being formed, and that's a big, that's, that's a big thing that reason that some people are so against disclosure in Congress and elsewhere is that they, that they're afraid that the people really freak out that they're being farmed, you know, just like we farm animals. And it really gets you to thinking about how we treat animals, you know, and we're essentially just being treated like, like, uh, like animals and we're being farmed and, uh, um, uh, maybe a lot of these conflicts that we have and whatever, you know, are, are being instigated by these uh, predatory extraterrestrials just to keep us fenced in and, uh, and all on this planet where they can, uh, can continue to, uh, to uh, draw on our uh, genetic and other resources. And Nolan even comes up with that and, Cobert's even being told that, you know, some of the top people that are in the disclosure process now, that they have to come, they have to pay attention, that their sources are telling them they've got to pay attention to the encounter cases. And if anybody wants to study, you know, uh, there's a lot of different Facebook groups and whatever, you know, but, uh, 
uh, that they can get on. And a lot of people, a lot of the inductees communicate amongst themselves and support each other because they're not getting any support from a lot of the rest of society. <laughs> so, so then you thing is well how do you how, the, the, the way out of that is, is well you know it's 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 uh cover up allows this so the way out is transparency so finally somebody got smart up top some of our leaders who got smart and realized the only way out of this mess is total and complete transparency but on the other hand, you still got people fighting, you know, because of their own special interests and the money and, right. and everything else. But it's but more and more people are coming to this realization that we're being farmed. And in fact, that was my first possible contact, telepathic contact with an extraterrestrial, even though I've never had a face to face is when I was looking up in the sky as a young man. And I didn't always expect what the communication that I had. And it says, you know, we, you know, we are to you as you are to your garden. I didn't really like that very much. That wasn't what I expected because I've been reading about, you know, benevolent extraterrestrials and whatever. But, uh, but so that's the, that, that's what's going on. And that's probably why it's all going on beneath the situational awareness of the general public. So there's a fight for humanity going on that, that and the destruction of the earth in which these technologies can come out and completely turn things around as far as global warming. And other destructive acts on the planet. All right, we're uh, we are officially out of time. <laughs> <laughs> um, listen, Ed, uh, I knew it was going to be a great show. I, I, I really have had a great time with this thing today. Um, for those of you who are interested, uh, there's a lot of information here that you can look up about Ed, and I think that you'll find most of it to be pretty easy to access. He's got a lot of stuff up on the internet and uh, I hope that, that you get a chance to uh, go to some of the different places. Yeah, uh, just go through the portal website, kamarik.weebly.com and that will take you into all the other, the other, the books are all free. All the material is free. All right. For the rest of you, thank you for watching and listening to the timeless Voyager series podcast. Of course, it's on video players like uh, YouTube and, audio players like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many, many more. One thing you can do to support the growth of the Timeless Voyager series is to hit that like button, share, comment, and and please subscribe. It, it really helps to keep the podcast on the internet so that I can keep producing content like the program you've just watched and or listened to. Also, uh, they're very important because these actions trigger the algorithms we all live in an age of algorithms and those algorithms help grow the timeless voyager channel and remember there's no obligation uh, all the actions are free so my name is bruce stephen holmes and i hope that your own personal voyage through life towards the development of your highest potential is a joyous and successful one
Two.